Welcome to Primity, where we find simple techniques to help address modern problems for our primitive bodies. My name is Andrew Pafford, and I'm going to go ahead and apologize in advance for the way I sound today as my allergies are acting up terribly, but duty calls, and so I must get this done. For those of you who don't know, if you haven't been listening already, I'm a health and wellness professional with over a decade of experience helping Olympic athletes, desk jockeys, and seniors achieving their goals and improving their quality of life. Our purpose with Primity is to try to distill scientific findings into easily approachable strategies and techniques to improve health and wellness for everyday life. So today we'll begin the first of our three-part series involving weight loss. There are many factors that go into it, and needless to say, weight loss affects the vast majority of Americans. At least two-thirds of Americans are overweight, with almost half of them being obese. So whether you are just trying to lose five pounds to get ready for beach season, or if you need to lose a lot of weight for medical reasons, it's safe to say that if you're listening to this, this will probably have some bearing on your life. Now, let's start off the gate by addressing the biggest elephant in the room when it comes to weight loss, and rightly so, which is nutrition. Nutrition accounts for 80%. If you're looking to make meaningful change for weight loss, you're going to be hard-pressed to try to do that without making any kind of change to your diet. Unless you're just maintaining weight, you're likely not going to engage in any kind of meaningful, meaningful loss without dietary intervention. So first and foremost, let's set a baseline. What is a diet versus what are diets? What a diet is supposed to be is food and drink that is regularly provided or consumed, or rather that is your habitual nourishment. So if you don't think that you are on a diet, your day-to-day is your diet. That has been the actual definition of what diet is. Only later in our culture has the term start to become a program referring to a regimen of eating and drinking sparingly so as to reduce one's weight. To put things in perspective, we have been gradually getting larger as a species. Our weight, of course, will increase as our height increases. So in the, in the Middle Ages, the average height of a male was five foot six, and a female was five foot and a half inches. Currently, the average height of a male is five nine, and the average height of females is five four. So within the past 300 years, on average, we've gotten taller by about three inches. So it's safe to say that the taller you are, the more weight you're going to have. You're a bigger person. However, in the 80s, that was the first time we as a species became heavier without a correlating weight increase. So we are still the same height on average. However, our average weights have continued to increase without the height to explain such. So it wasn't until about the 80s did we start to really begin to drastically see an increase of being overweight. So as we've already given away the big reveal, so to speak, of how to lose weight, how are we supposed to go about losing weight effectively? Some things to keep in mind, some simple rules of thumb, that looking healthy means being healthy, and being healthy means acting healthy. This sounds pretty straightforward, but a lot of us don't take that meaning to heart. We say that we want to look good, and then we'll turn around and eat fast food and sit on the couch all day. So we don't act like we're healthy at all, and yet we always say that we want to look good. The way our body looks is 
absolutely a reflection of how we treat it. So if you want to look like you are healthy, then you have to, surprise, act like you are healthy. Of course, the inverse is true. Doing unhealthy programs is going to net you unhealthy outcomes, especially for diets. So if you do something that is an unhealthy diet, like you're trying to take a shortcut to lose 10 pounds in the matter of three weeks, that is going to lead to an unhealthy outcome. Worse, this can lead to what we call yo-yoing. So if you do something that your body does not appreciate, you're taxing your body in an unhealthy manner, such as doing a juiced cleanse for two weeks, you're effectively depriving it of vital nutrients that it needs in order to survive. So once that cleanse is over, it's going to want to make up for lost time, and that's going to trigger all of the fun things in your body that are going to make you eat and retain much of the food that you're eating So you're going to very likely put on that weight with interest. So at the end of the day, after three weeks of that two-week cleanse and then playing that one week of catch-up, you're likely going to weigh more at the end of those three weeks than if you had just not done any program for those three weeks. So that being said, there are no shortcuts when it comes to weight loss. If you are going to be successful at losing weight by using a healthy intervention, it is going to take time. What I like to tell a lot of my clients is that if you do not get overweight overnight, you're not going to get skinny overnight. If it's been five years that your weight has been gradually creeping up, it's probably going to take you close to about five years for that weight to come off, depending on just how far you've fallen off the bandwagon. So let's talk about weapons of choice now. As mentioned, the only diet that works is the one that you stick to. It can be the world's most effective program, but if you're not going to follow it because it doesn't suit your lifestyle or your dietary needs, then it's not going to work. So splitting hairs over the litany of diets that exist, over this one's the healthiest, this one has the best results, blah, blah, blah. If, if you can't adhere to the guidelines, then it will not work for you, plain and simple. So today's episode is not to necessarily dissect all of the different programs that exist and which ones are good and which ones are bad. It's kind of like exercise. They're all good and they're all bad. What matters is which one is appropriate for you and your needs. That is going to involve your research because everyone is a little bit of a unique snowflake. So what we're going to try to do is give you the principles of effective weight loss, which the vast majority of these programs do. As we like to say, the methods of dieting are many, but the principles are few. So armed with the principles of what you need to be successful, you can then use that to help tailor some of these programs to fit your needs. So starting out of the gate, what should we consider with appropriate diet selection? Number one, we've already talked about it, is sustainability slash longevity. This is your adherence. If you're not going to stay on that program for a long time, then it's not going to work. So when you look at these programs, they typically involve six weeks of doing the program, but then with no follow-up, that's a big red flag. So when you look at this and it has the six-week program, you have to ask yourself, if I were to continue to do this program beyond six weeks, would I suffer any negative repercussions? For example, your juice cleanse. 
you would probably survive. You would be absolutely miserable. But if you had to do that juice cleanse for a year straight, yeah, no, you're going to the hospital. So ask yourself, looking at whatever program you've come upon, can I do this longer than six weeks with no negative repercussions? If not, then it's a recipe for disaster. Don't even bother. Remember, shortcuts can yield short-term weight loss with typically worse weight gain afterwards because of the stress that the body had to undergo. A rule of thumb for tracking is a healthy average weight loss is about a pound of fat a week. It's going to obviously vary from case to case, depending on your starting point, your gender, your level of activity, etc. The more overweight you are, so the further away you are from a quote-unquote healthy baseline, the faster you're going to be able to lose weight. But as you approach your baseline, that weight loss is going to start to slow down. So don't be discouraged if you're not losing 20 pounds a week like you see on Biggest Loser. Again, that's when you're starting out at your heaviest. So that's typically when that happens. If you're 20, 30 pounds overweight, you are not going to see those kinds of losses. You're arguably close to your baseline in terms of the big scheme of things. So it's going to take you about 20 to 30 weeks to lose that weight. Additionally, when it comes to weight loss, people do not take into consideration their lean mass. Since a good bit of us are not only overweight but deconditioned, it's not uncommon for us to engage in exercise in addition to changing our eating habits. So it is absolutely expected that you'll be putting on muscle mass, and especially for Guys, it's much easier to gain muscle mass more quickly. So it is absolutely possible to lose a pound or two of fat and gain a pound or two of muscle within two to three weeks of being a new regiment. And that scale is going to read no change. When the reality is you've made fantastic change. You've gained muscle and lost fat. So something to consider is getting a device, whether it's a scale or a handheld reader, that will help you do body composition readings. Sort of the market standard now is what we call bioelectrical impedance. You basically strip down to your birthday suit, you hold this thing, it zaps you. I'm kidding, you can't feel it, but technically it actually sends a low-level current of electricity through your body. It does some calculations on how much electricity makes it back, and then is able to determine how much of you is lean versus how much you is fat, because lean mass is mostly water, so it's a conductor, fat is an insulator, so it does the maths and figure out how much of you is what. So use that in conjunction with a scale to see are you shifting in the right direction. So our second thing in terms of diet selection is quality. Not all diets focus on quality of food. So there's something to keep in mind when you are doing the selection. That's not to say that those diets are bad. However, that can be a huge thing that can undermine your diet. For example, I know people who do keto or zone diet where it's mostly just focused on the macronutrients, your proteins, fats, and carbs. One of the big proponents of, I believe, the zone diet was you could technically go to McDonald's every day. As long as you ate your macronutrients in the right proportion, you would lose weight. Technically speaking, that would happen. However, there would be some other negative repercussions from eating McDonald's every day because that food is extremely processed. So let's talk about bad quality of foods. When we talk about processing foods, there's a couple different ways food can be processed. 
We'll start with the simple one that's really not that bad but can play a role, and that is mechanical processing of food. Mechanical is literally taking something and physically changing it. I've not heated it. I've not added chemicals. I've not removed anything from it. I've just taken it and basically mushed it up. So in our example, let's talk about fruit and turning it into a smoothie. If you were to eat two bananas, and you're welcome to do this experiment at home, it's completely safe and healthy, but it'll prove a point real fast, is you eat two bananas, dimes to dollars, you're done. No one wants to eat more than two bananas. Usually after one banana, we're good. Sure, I'll eat a second banana because you dared me to. Three bananas, uh, no, I'm starting to feel a little full. I'm uncomfortable. I might actually get sick if I have that third banana. Now, I want you to put three, four, five bananas in a blender, blend it up, and see how easy it is for you to drink all of those bananas. From a weight loss standpoint, it is much easier to consume more calories if they have been mechanically processed. This is why smoothies can be somewhat of an undoing if you abuse it. Smoothies are absolutely healthy, and if you are trying to perform athletically, that's a great way to get your micronutrients and still get the calories that you need without having to eat processed foods. But for weight loss, mechanical processing can make it easier to overconsume calories. So just keep that in the back of your mind if you do do now. Where the big sticklers come in are chemical processing. Chemical processing can have effects that may not be entirely anticipated. For example, many processed foods have been designed to have preservatives. This can make food harder to digest. The reason being is because that food is now chemically altered to be more shelf stable so that it does not break down. That means it is either literally harder for our body to break it down because it's been, if you want to call it, more chemically supported, almost like adding cement, if you will, to something. It's much harder to knock it down. But it's also chemically preserved to help prevent bacteria from causing that food to spoil. Well, we use bacteria to help us break down the food. So if our bacteria can't help us, now we have food in our stomach that's much, much more difficult for us to digest. On top of that, it's a give-take relationship. We have sort of a symbiotic relationship. The food that we eat also feeds the bacteria in our gut. So not only can they not break down that food for us, when they break it down to eat it, they also break it down for us so that we can digest it easier. So if they can't break it down, not only is it harder for us to absorb any of the nutrient content from that food, but they don't get to eat anything at all. So now they start to starve. So people who have basically a nothing but processed food diet, their gut floor is all but gone. And this can lead to a lot of other issues that now, literally within the past decade, we're starting to find all of these links between sleep, mood, activity, and of course, digestive issues all linked to gut flora. So eating processed foods, not so good for the little guys in our tummies. Many of these processed foods have also been altered for the sake of taste. Now, sometimes this is to shortcut calorie consumption. So we've, we've created chemicals that create an artificially sweet taste, but to have no calories at face value. That sounds like having your cake and eating it too, but with literally everything in life, there's no such thing as a free dinner. So 
one group of these artificial sweeteners are known as sugar alcohols. It's sort of an open secret that about half of the population tolerates sugar alcohols. The rest of you get explosive diarrhea. It's not super great. If you don't believe me, you can go on Amazon and look up, uh, what is it? Sugar-free, I believe it was Haribo gummy bears at one point that went pretty viral with the review. There were some pretty epic <laughs> reviews of like novellas of people describing their encounters with eating these sugar-free gummy bears. And the reason being was the sugar alcohol that was added to those gummy bears. You look at the ingredients and it contains something like erythritol or inositol. Anything that ends with O-L means that it is an alcohol. So be forewarned about sugar alcohols if you've not been subjected to them before. And if you do, do not pop you a handful and then go out for the evening. I would advise you to stay home just in case and maybe have an extra roll of toilet paper or five. Additionally to these sugar alcohols, there is a trickle-down effect as well from consuming artificial sweeteners. Even if it's something arguably more natural like stevia, which does come from a naturally occurring plant, and if that plant has not been concentrated or processed in that way, shape, or form, and it was used sort of like how we would just add herbs to flavor our food, the one hiccup with artificial sweeteners is that they still taste sweet. And it's that sweet taste that our bodies are actually programmed to recognize, not only to crave, because historically speaking, that was a, a meant an abundance of calories and that equaled survival. Eating more calories meant we would last longer between meals till we could find more calories the next time. But we also were adapted to be able to utilize those calories the moment they started to hit our system. Because it takes time for the body to absorb things, it wants to prepare in advance for the receiving of this sweetness. And this gets down to blood sugar management. If our blood sugar gets out of whack, not so good things happen to us. If our blood sugar gets too high, we can go into a diabetic shock. If our blood sugar gets too low, we can go into a diabetic coma, neither of which are fun things to do. So to, to help stabilize our blood sugar in the presence or absence of ingesting sugar, we can release two different hormones, insulin and glucagon. Most of you probably heard of insulin because of the now prevalence of type 2 diabetes, but a lot of us have not heard of glucagon. Glucagon is literally the antithesis to insulin. Insulin helps our bodies absorb, process, and even store sugar. So when insulin binds to the surface receptors of our cells, that tells the cells to open up and take in the sugar so that it can be processed and utilized for energy. This is why if you have a whole bunch of sugar, you get the jitters. Because now all of a sudden you have all of this excess energy that you didn't really need. And so now you're kind of cracked out. That insulin was what allowed the cells to absorb and take in that sugar. If you are constantly, constantly given insulin, you can develop an insulin, an insulin resistance, aka insulin resistant type 2 diabetes. Now, my point with this is that it takes time for our bodies to release insulin. 
So if the sugar is already in our stomachs and being absorbed, and then our body started to process or started to release and secrete insulin, it would take time for that insulin to ramp up and reach all of the cells in our body so that they could utilize the sugar floating around in our blood. That would mean the sugar in our blood would start to become too concentrated, and now we're getting into the diabetic shock territory. So because it takes insulin time, it needs a head start on sugar before it reaches our gut. That head start comes from our taste buds. So the moment you taste sweet, your body begins to release insulin before it even makes it to your small intestine. Now, I hope you start to see where this is going. So if something tastes sweet, insulin is released into the blood, which means what sugar is floating around in the blood, hopefully is a nominal baseline where the body wants it to be, it will start to pull the sugar out of the blood and into the cells. Now that food hits your stomach, but guess what? It's an artificial sweetener. There is no sugar in that food. So now what's happened? You've lowered your blood sugar in anticipation of sugar coming in from your food to keep it, to raise it back up, to keep it at normal appropriate levels. Well, now you've dipped in the other direction. So now you're starting to drift towards the diabetic coma territory. This is not good for the body. So once those levels start to dip, you have other markers, excuse me, you have other essentially reflexes or survival mechanisms that the body's developed over time to help prevent your blood sugar from continuing to dip too low and going into a diabetic coma. So what happens is your energy levels tank. If you don't have any fuel coursing through your veins, then we're going to limit your output so that you don't use up what little fuel remains. So you're going to crash, you're going to feel tired, lethargic, likely cranky, aka hangry, and that's also going to trigger your appetite. So now you are going to be hungry because your body is going to demand that you actually eat sugar to help get some more back into your bloodstream to then regulate your blood sugar levels for you. So in this scenario, if I have one, a normal soft drink with sugar, and then another soft drink that is zero sugar, I might have my 100 calories from my normal sugary drink, and I have zero calories from the fake one. However, once your blood sugar starts to tank, you are going to get hungry, and you're likely going to eat food that has more than 100 calories. So now those fake drinks that you're drinking are actually causing you indirectly to eat and consume more calories than you would have had you stuck with the normal sugar drink to begin with. Of course, the best solution is just not having soda at all because they're just terrible for you and offer no nutritive value. You're better off just drinking water. So case in point, there is no such thing as a free ride. Just because it says zero calories doesn't mean it, does, it won't come with consequences. So be forewarned about zero calorie foods. Finally, for processing, even healthy foods that have been raised improperly can be detrimental to your health. For example, meat or dairy products with growth hormones, this can affect, affect your body's production of sex hormones and thyroid functioning, which can affect your ability, which can affect how you grow and how you manage your weight. Many of these hormones are fed to cows so that they 
get larger, hence the growth hormone. So if those then, through the processing, make it to you, you are now getting growth hormones to uh, get larger. Sex hormones. Cows are basically fed hormones to tell their bodies that they have just had a calf so they continue to produce milk. Like most mammals, you only make milk after you've given birth to a baby. And then the baby continues to stimulate the production of the milk. Well, after a period of time, that starts to go away. So in order to keep cows producing, they need hormones put into them telling their bodies that they've just had a baby, so they need to keep producing milk. Well, that those hormones, those artificial ones, make it then to us, which can also which also tends to explain why children, quote unquote, are developing much faster than they used to. There's a lot of school of thought into that as well. So further, other foods that typically can be healthy, but have had some negative components added to them are vegetables with pesticides. At this point, weight loss is about the least of your worries, because I'd be more worried about dying a painful death, such as nervous system disruptions leading to paralysis and death, stomach poisoning, what have you. Won't go into too much depth, but if you want a glance of what we're putting on foods and where those foods come from, then I would refer you to this study. It's called Exposure to Pesticides and the Associated Human Health Effects. This is from Ki Hyun Kim and others. It's a fascinating study, but it ultimately shows types of pesticides that are used to help keep food safe from critters, chewing on them, fungal infections, etc. What countries use those pesticides? And what types of foods those countries typically use those pesticides on and then export. So this is where it gets a little interesting, where just because the U.S. has outlawed the use of many types of pesticides doesn't mean that we don't import foods from other countries that still use those pesticides. So looking at the sourcing of your food is important, and also appropriate preparation of your foods as well, so just thorough cleaning as well. So the final leg... Quick recap, we've got our adherence slash longevity of a program. We've got our quality of foods. And finally now, probably the biggest one most people are addressing is the quantity. There's two ways to assess quantity of a diet program. Number one, what everyone and their mother is beating over the head with is calories. It's not wrong. There's arguably some nuance to it, but at the end of the day, Calories in, for the most part, equal calories out. If you are consuming more calories than you're burning, you're going to put on fat. There's a little bit of leeway with thermic effect of food. Certain types of macros require more energy to get at than others do. Sure, there's some of that. However, by and large, if you are overeating by a 1,000 calories a day, no thermic effect or protein only or whatever hacks you want to do are going to get around the fact that you're going to be saving that. So calories cannot be ignored when it comes to a program. In addition to quantifying your calories, we also have to talk about quantifying our macronutrients. Macronutrients are your proteins, fats, and carbs. Technically, you can utilize alcohol, but you basically should never be drinking alcohol just throw that in the corner. We don't even talk about that for now. However, with macronutrients, you can actually be punished 
not only for eating too much, but also eating too little. Sometimes it's not as straightforward. So finding a balance of all three is crucial. There's one exception to that rule, and we'll get to that. But out of the gate, let's talk about protein. If you don't get enough protein, you're going to get muscle atrophy, and lean mass is very helpful when it comes to weight management because the more lean mass you have, the more calories you're able to eat in a day. So then it becomes harder to overeat as well. So if you're not eating enough protein, you're not going to be able to maintain your muscle mass and lean mass. But additionally, your lean mass includes your organs. So if you are not eating protein, enough protein on a consistent basis, you could actually be suffering slow but cumulative organ damage. Now, while we can't necessarily overdo protein because it can't be stored, there is a very convoluted pathway that protein can technically be turned into carbohydrates called gluconeogenesis. It's not easy, but it is doable. So if you were just consume nothing but protein all the time, your body would arguably be able to make carbs. And if it got enough of those, it could technically put it into storage. The chances of that happening are slim to none, but that can arguably be one case for overeating protein. Aside from that, there's not a lot of of literature that shows what exactly happens when we consume too much protein, and there have been no real observable detriments. There are some out there who say that if when you break down the protein, it can be slightly acidic. So if you are eating nothing but protein all the time, that could create a slightly acidic environment in the blood. However, if you're eating a well-balanced diet and the foods that you eat along with it are also basic by nature, it balances itself out. So there's no reason you should be burning up your kidneys and liver to try to keep your blood at an appropriate pH. So next for our macronutrients is carbohydrates. Carbs, if you don't eat enough of them, you feel sluggish, you have no energy. This is your fuel. If protein is the building blocks, carbs are your gasoline. If you eat too many carbohydrates, aka sugar or starches, this is where the excess gets stored into fat, also known as lipogenesis. Literally means fat and then creation. Lipo is fat, genesis is the beginning of creation, so the beginning of making new fat. If you eat zero carbs, however, you can get into a state called ketosis. This is the one unique Thing that kind of exists outside all other diets because your body actually has a very specialized process of turning fat into carbs and utilizing that as its primary fuel source. There's a lot of caveats with ketosis and it probably warrants its own conversation one day. But if you are going to consider that, you need to do a lot of research because ketosis has a hard adherence protocol and not just because of some arbitrary rule that somebody made up. If you are in ketosis, well, first of all, it is hard to get into ketosis. You basically go through a couple days of feeling like a zombie because as I mentioned earlier, when you don't eat enough carbs, you feel sluggish. But when you have zero carbs, you're like the walking dead. You don't want to do anything. It's hard to think. You've got brain fog. You can't sleep for crap. You're irritable. You're moody. Your productivity goes to hell. So getting into ketosis can be bad. Once you're in ketosis, it's great. However, if you cheat and have carbs, it will immediately kick you out of ketosis because your body goes, oh, great, we don't have to work hard to be in ketosis anymore. Carbohydrates are now back and readily available. 
now that you're out, you have to go through that process of getting back into ketosis again. So if you are not iron-willed and you are prone to cheat from time to time, ketosis is going to be insanely hard for you. So you've been warned about that. Now, fat, fat is interesting. Obviously, if we consume a lot of fat, it's already fat. It's easy to store fat. However, not eating enough fat has indirect consequences because if you're not eating enough fat, it usually means you're overeating something else in order to hit your caloric requirement, aka it's probably carbohydrates. There's an interesting uh, study that we found. It's a very long name, but it is Hiding Unhealthy Heart Outcomes in a Low-Fat Diet Trial. The Women's Health Initiative Randomized Control Dietary Modification Trial finds that postmenopause women with established coronary heart disease were at increased risk of an adverse outcome if they consumed a low-fat, quote, heart-healthy diet. Now, while this was done with postmenopausal women as the group that was studied, the findings, I would argue, are probably going to be across the board. And ultimately, this was the 90s, 2000s, when they found that heart disease was on the rise and that, well, if there's too much fat in the arteries, it must mean that people are eating too much fat. Therefore, we're going to recommend a low-fat diet. It's very reductive, and that's usually how things wind up being wrong. Because people were consuming low-fat diets, they were cutting out a large chunk of their caloric intake. Fat is 9 calories per gram. Carbs are four calories per gram. So you can literally eat twice as many carbohydrates to get the same amount of calories as fat. So people were basically saying, well, now I'm eating the same amount of calories, but I get to eat more carbs all the time. Well, what are carbs? Sugar. What does our body do in order to maintain blood sugar? Release insulin. What happens if we release too much insulin all the time? insulin resistance. Oh yeah, what's that disease? Type 2 diabetes. So what they found in this study by um, Professor Timothy David Noakes is that, surprise, all of these people were beginning to develop insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes because of the, quote, heart-healthy, low-fat diet. Code word for they were overeating carbs because they weren't consuming enough fat. So while not having enough fat in and of itself is probably not great, but with no immediate negative effects. The only way for you to hit your calorie goals is likely to be consuming more carbohydrates to get your fuel, and that leads to type 2. So you have to have these in a balance. A lot of diets do not stress quantity. So for example, some go to the other end of the spectrum, like paleo or keto or the Mediterranean diet, where they might mention balance, but they do not spell out in great detail how to do the balancing. They always say, oh, it balances itself out. Well, that's not necessarily the case. If I were to eat nothing but watermelon, I would technically be paleo, but I'm not consuming enough protein, and I'm definitely overeating on carbohydrates. I'm not tracking. I'm not balanced. Bad things can happen, even though if I'm staying within the parameters of a certain diet. So when you look at some of these programs, just because they don't mention quantifying your calories or quantifying your macronutrients doesn't mean you don't need to do it. You absolutely need to. So if you're not tracking your food, and there's a litany of food trackers that exist out there, most of them for free at this point, then you're probably setting yourself up for disaster or for nominal results at best. 
Because if you're not tracking, I don't know how you're over or under at that point. So finally, when it comes to dieting, whatever you're doing, you're not going to be able to outwork a bad diet. Burning extra calories is not that simple just through physical exertion. And we will discuss that more in depth in our next episode, which is exercise. So to put things simply and to kind of sum it up, weight loss comes when the body is happy. Our bodies love to handle stress one way, metabolism down, fat storage up. That's how we survived. When times got hard, we put things in low gear. It uses the least amount of gas to try to get us to the next day where we can hopefully find food. And then when we found that food, we put it into storage, used what little we need to survive, and anything extra goes into storage so that we can draw upon it for when the times continue to be tough. So the more you stress your body, the more negative effects are going to happen. This is not just mental stress, which is going to be episode three of our weight loss series, but also physical stress as well. So all of the crap food, whether it's processed, whether you're not balanced, all of those things that could be stressing the body, that's going to result in lowering your metabolism and in fat storage. Every factor that puts the body at unease will contribute to weight gain in some way. So the better you treat your body, better the quality, the better the quantity, and the longer over time you adhere to those rules, the more likely your body is going to respond positively by upping that metabolism and lowering fat storage because you're continuing to reinforce and tell the body times are good, no reason to be paranoid. So that basically sums up today. Next week, we will talk about exercise and its role in weight loss and how it does not do exactly what people think it does, and we'll go into the details about why it is still important. So we will see you next time for part two in our weight loss series on Primity. Take care.